There again after having missed last week. Um, we had the snowstorm and I was away, but I was just thinking about this week um, how much I love being with you and being together with this church on Sundays, and so it's great to be back together. We are continuing in Romans chapter 5. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome. Welcome to any of you who are watching uh, online as well. And we pray God's blessing on you. And encourage you to come and visit. The best thing is to be here. There is a significant difference, I think we've all learned, uh, between watching and physically being present. And so um, we're glad you're here, but even better to be here with us. So thank you, everyone, who, who's here as well. Uh, so we'll be in chapter 5. Uh, we'll start at verse 12. And while you're turning there, um, I want to tell you, actually, I've been enjoying recently uh, learning more about my ancestors through both DNA testing and, um, and a family tree database. I don't know if you guys are into that. I imagine there's some here who have done that and got to know uh, who your ancestors were. I've enjoyed it. I've learned lots of things. Actually, uh, it's really interesting. On one of the uh, apps that I have, it gives you a map and it shows you all your cousins throughout the world. And I have like a thousand new cousins I didn't know about throughout the whole world, and I actually have three cousins here in Haverhill that I never knew about, uh, and trying to figure out how they're related to me. And one of those cousins, actually, the family, uh, the, the granddaughter is marrying Peg's nephew. Uh, so my cousin's marrying Peg's nephew, and so my kids will be double cousins, I guess. It's, it's all pretty fascinating. Um, I've learned other stuff. I learned that, uh, that one of the earliest Buckley immigrants, but with the name Buckley, settled in Salem, and he was a Civil War hero. He fought with a, a famous regiment out of that area. Uh, he fought in the Battle of Petersburg, was taken prisoner, and was sent to Andersonville Prison. If you know anything about that, that's a notorious prison in the Confederate Army. Forty percent of the POWs died in that prison. He somehow survived and came back, and that's my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather Patrick. Uh, it's hard, by the way, if you're Irish, to find your relatives because everyone's named Patrick or Mary, uh, and it's tough to figure out who is who. Uh, I also learned recently that I carry a gene for a serious blood disease called hemochromatosis. And this is the famous Celtic gene where your body stores too much iron. Uh, it can't get rid of the iron in your blood, and it can, be, uh, very, it can cause all sorts of symptoms and even uh, death. Uh, they think it is predominant in Irish people because uh, of the famine. It actually gives you an advantage in starvation. You can last longer because you have more iron and thus more oxygen and so forth. Uh, and so with just kind of the famines that I Irish people went through, it kind of made those who had it survive. Therefore, it's more predominant. So anyhow, I found out my grand... I didn't know this. My grandfather had the... I haven't the gene. I don't have this, the disease, uh, though I'm getting checked in, March, in May. Um, I don't have the disease. My grandfather had it, and he had to get like blood transfusions regularly to, to get fresh non-iron blood. Um, so I'm learning all these things, and you're probably thinking, okay, is this whole message going to be on you and your ancestry? No, there's a point here. Um, whether we know it or not, our ancestors have a great influence on us. And there is both uh, physical biological ancestry, and there's spiritual ancestry. And what we're going to learn today is that our ultimate ancestor has a massive influence on us as humans. The spiritual uh, DNA, so to speak, we've inherited from Adam 
puts us in great peril. This spiritual DNA we inherit from Adam puts us in great spiritual peril. But take heart, there is a complete cure as well. That's what we'll see in God's Word. So let's pray that we could learn from the Word and we could understand these things and apply them to our lives and live in them. God has good things for us in His Word. He wants to encourage us. He wants to equip us. He wants to help us learn to be worshipers. So let's pray He does that as we look at His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this passage in Romans 5. The truths that it reveals to us that are so important, more important than our DNA and our ancestry, our family tree, is the truth that's here. And so help us to understand and apply the, this truth to our lives. And Lord, to understand the, this reality of our heritage and the reality of the cure. Help me, Lord, to teach it well that the result would be we would hear from you. It wouldn't be about my opinions or my, my voice or teaching, but you and your word and your glorious truth. Build us up, equip us, encourage us, and Lord, use us to spread your good news throughout the globe and throughout our neighborhoods as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 12, Romans 5, starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's Word from Romans chapter 5. We learn from this important passage that although our spiritual heritage is one of sin and death through Adam, our spiritual inheritance is one of justification and life through Jesus. Adam did his damage. Christ has overcome. Adam destroyed. Christ restores. Adam fails. Christ fulfills. Adam brings condemnation. Christ brings justification. Adam spreads death. Christ spreads life. Let's dig in and learn about this. We'll first start looking at verses 12 through 14. 
And we'll focus in on Adam's sin. You'll notice as you look at the passage uh, that there's lots of what are called conjunctive adverbs. These words that compare one to another. Different things that, that are said like, um, like uh, so and, and, and just and, and therefore. Uh, so also much more just as. So these comparisons you'll see throughout this section. These these words that are used to compare one thing to another. So you probably saw this already. Adam is compared to Jesus. Jesus is compared to Adam. But it's not just Jesus and Adam being compared to each other. We are compared to them as well. And we are compared to the situations they bring. So there's all these connections. And Paul does this throughout this passage. This paragraph is built on the concept of our connection to either Adam or Jesus. It's important to acknowledge the key idea that our connection to Adam and Jesus determines not only our spiritual history, but our spiritual destiny. And the idea of spiritual union is key in this passage, and, and I'll, I'll, we'll take more time to, to dissect that. We're all united with Adam, not only genetically, but spiritually. And we find in Jesus a more powerful and determinative union than that of Adam. But first, we need to dig into the nature of our connection to Adam to understand that so that we can appreciate the reality and that we might better appreciate the cure that Jesus brings. So verses 12 through 4, actually just verse, verses 12, gives us an, a logical arrangement, this connection between sin and death. And so I think there's a slide that shows arrows, if you could show that one. So it says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so it's saying sin came into the world through one man, and that led to death. So sin, arrow, death, right? One man. But it compares that, right? And so, there's the comparison word, and so uh, death spread to all men because all sinned. So now it's talking about all, and it's saying death spread to all because all sinned. So this is a connection between Adam, the one who, who sins and then there's death, but also the co comparison to all who sin and then also experience death. So that connection is important. That kind of sets the tone for the, for the whole section. Sin entered through the one man, Adam. Sin entered the world through one man. Sin came into the world through the one man, Adam. This terrible thing called sin. Sin is the disease and the behavior of rebellion against God. Now, it might be hard at times for us and from our worldview perspective when we come at this to say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the, the problem is that God is the only source of all that is good and right and glorious. So rebellion against God is a fundamental betrayal of all that is good and right and glorious. It's not just like, well, I'm just not into that. that, that there's more going on. When we rebel against God, when we turn against God, we are rejecting ultimately all that is good and glorious and right and true. Even though that might not be all of our intention, that's what's going on. And so to cut ourselves off from God and rebellion is to cut ourselves off from life itself, true life. Death naturally follows, of course, with sin because sin is the act of turning away from that which is truly life. And of course, when you turn away from life, where do you end up? In death. Separation from God is death. 
Physical death is really just a part, an aspect of the fullness of death. The worst part of death is our separation from God, our spiritual death. And so sin enters this, the world, sin, this rebellion, this idea that somehow we can be independent beings on our own apart from God. Somehow we can somehow be like God on our own. This foolishness, this disposition, this behavior of sin enters the world through this representative man, Adam. Now, Paul doesn't go into too much here in, in Romans 5 on the situation. You can look and read about it in Genesis 3. Um, he doesn't spend too much time here about all the details of Genesis, but the core thing that happens in Genesis is represented here. And by the way, part of what Paul might be doing here in chapters 5, even, even through 8, is helping his Gentile audience get the picture. If you, if you look at how Paul preaches elsewhere, he often goes back to the original man and, and, and the consequences there, and, the, and then looks at Jesus. That's how he tends to preach to Gentiles who wouldn't have appreciated maybe the law and the history of, of the patriarchs and so forth like we saw in chapter 4. So he is focusing on this core idea of sin entering the world and then death through sin. Did the sin of Adam and the death that resulted affect just Adam? No. There's a connection here, right? There's some sort of connection between Adam's sin and death and then the sin of all and the death that spread to all. And the question is, what is that connection? That's the key thing. And how do we determine what that connection is? Because if we just look at verse 12, we're, we're not sure. We do know that Adam sinned and then Adam died. And we know that all sinned and all died. And we know that Paul is comparing them, right? And so, this situation. But how are they connected? That's the question. And just so you know that there's been lots of debate among believers for centuries on the nature of that connection. And actually there's been lots of debate on verse 12 and exactly what verse 12 means. And it boils down to really two choices. Either the connection is a direct one or an indirect one. It's either direct Somehow all in their sinning and their death is connected directly, intricately with Adam's sin and his death, or it's indirect. And so the different ideas that are out there, one is that, well, it's indirect and it's really Adam's bad example. Adam made a bad choice and we follow that choice. We have a free choice. We can choose whatever we want. For some reason, we all make the worst choice, I guess. Um, and that's one of the ways to understand this. Another way, slightly away from as indirect as that, kind of a middle one, is that, well, Adam's sin led to a corruption. And that corruption is either a societal corruption or a, or a genetic, you know, a, a, an essential corruption, something about your very being. It's some sort of corruption, and then that leads to you sinning and death. So that's kind of in the middle. And then more directly is that actually... We sinned in union with Adam. We were somehow connected to Adam in, in some spiritual union that was set up by God. And so when he sinned and he died, we sinned with him and we died with him. Does that make sense? That kind of lays out the poles, indirect, direct, and the ideas. So those are the ideas that are out there. And the question is, how do we figure it out? Well, always good in God's word to look at the verses, but to look around the verses and what I would say is that the, the way to interpret verse 12 is a key factor. The context, what's going to be said 
following is a key factor. And the comparisons, the nature of those comparisons between Jesus and Adam and us and Jesus and us and Adam, I think that will direct our conclusion. I'll tell you ahead of time, I think the third point is the biblical one. And I don't want you to say that just because I say it. I want you to be convinced. But I do think that the, the way we're connected to Adam is through a spiritual union. And that when Adam sinned, we sinned with him in his representative role and our union with him. And when he died, we died with him. Now that doesn't say that, you know, uh, we can sin and we do sin elsewise. And there's culpability for those things as well. But, but this passage is saying, and I, I believe that we sinned in Adam. Now, that is probably shocking for some of us because it's just very foreign to think. How could someone else's choices affect me like that? What are you talking about? Hang in there, please. Just, you don't, if you get up and walk out, that's okay. We'll still love you. But just if you stick through the next 30 minutes, I think you'll have an answer that will at least help you a little bit. So let's continue. How do we, how do we figure this out? Well, we look in the context. And so the next verse, Paul says, For... All right, connecting to what he just said. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So he's connecting the four. He's saying, basically, I'm going to explain what I just said. Verses 13 through 14. And he says this stuff about the law. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. What does he mean by that? And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Well, in Romans, he talks a good bit about sin and the law and death. And so what we can do is to, we can look at this, but we can also look at other, some other passages in Romans to understand. You can look actually in chapter 3. We looked at things in 3. You can look uh, elsewhere, chapters 7. So let's just look in chapter 7. I have a verse to show you. Chapter 7, verse 7. He's talking about these connections, and, he, and we'll get to this later. Uh, but he says, what shall we uh, say then? The, the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proves to be the death of me, death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul is making connections here between sin, the law, and death. And what he's saying is there's sin, then when you add the law... It leads to death. And he's basically saying without the law, sin is not actually finishing this equation of sin and then death. The law comes and points out sin and rightly classifies it and rightly condemns it and rightly convicts it. So when we back up to chapter 5 now, when he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. He, in saying counted, he means counted in a way where it's clarified and condemned and convicted, where there's no law. Sin still can be there. Sin can be against what we know in our conscience and so forth. But he's talking about sin in a different way, not counted in this full way. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Well, what was the transgression of Adam like? Was there a law that he was given and then he disobeyed? Yes, right? Do not eat from that tree. 
He had a law. He knew the law. And so when he chose to sin, God had said, do not eat from that tree. And if you do, you shall surely die. And so the law was given. So when he sinned, it led to death, spiritual death. And so what Paul's saying is, people after Adam were dying, they were experiencing the sentence of Adam, yet they had not been under the law in the same way. So he's saying the descendants of Adam are now experiencing as if they had been the ones who sinned and, and thus were dying. That's what he's saying there. So that's one point. And remember, we're trying to understand the connection here, right? So that's what I'm getting at. That's one point in that. And then as we go through the, the, beyond chapter, verses 13 and 14, we see these comparisons, this long list of comparisons in different ways between Jesus and Adam and us and Jesus and Adam. And, and so if you take a look with me at some of these, uh, verses 12 through 19 lists out six different occurrences. I think we have those to show. Good. Can you guys see that? Yeah, just as sin. Sorry, that's supposed to be red, but I'll read it to you. So uh, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin. So it's comparing that. We already did that one. Then verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, says it right there, right? For if many died... The all died through the one man's trespass. Connecting the one man's sin with the many dying. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation for all. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man. So death is reigning over all humanity through that one man's trespass. Verse 18. And if you can't see that, just look in the Bible in your hand if you have one. If you don't have one in your hand, raise your hand. We'll get you a journal so you can see. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass, the trespass of Adam, led to condemnation for who? All men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we have all these things happening. Death, condemnation, the reign of death, and the status of sinner. All through one man, Adam. So Adam is sinning, and then there's death. And the context, both in terms of how the, what Paul said in 13 and 14 on the law, and what he says in these comparisons elsewhere, is saying the one man's sin and led to death, that death and that all those results came to all of us, and so we all are united in Adam. Now theologians call this federal headship. The word federal uh, is just a word that describes a covenant of union. Um, so the federal troops, right, are the union troops. The, 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 so federal headship means a covenantal union. So someone who's the head of a covenantal union. That's what they mean, and that's what the text is teaching us, that, that there's a head of this covenantal union, the covenant of works, the original covenant with mankind made with Adam. Do this, and you'll live. Do this, and you'll die. It's a covenant for all of humanity, and Adam wasn't the, the one who was the representative head for all of humanity in his capacity as the first man with, with his wife Eve. There's some culpability for Eve, but uh, Adam was the one who should have done the right thing. He was in charge. And there's a union with him. All humanity has a union with him. And so when he sinned, we sinned with him. And when he suffered death as a result, we suffered death with him. That's what Paul's saying here. And I, and I hope you're convinced. And afterwards, if you have questions, I'll be here and I can try to answer your questions. 
But I hope you see in the context and in the nature of these comparisons, this reality. Now, I empathize with you as a Westerner and not liking this sort of thing. We don't like this idea. We view ourselves through the lens of the autonomous individual. The idea that our prospects would depend on someone else's choices and actions seems at best foolish, at worst a violation of what's right and just. And so we rebel against this idea. Why should I have to suffer for Adam's decision and Adam's action? What sort of system is this? We don't like it. Would rather stand on our own two feet, thank you. Let me ask you, would you really? Do you really? Adam, do you think you could have done better than Adam? Think about it. Adam was the first human. He was made without sin. Not only without sin, but without any sort of corruption. So the brokenness of humanity that we experience, the natural corruption in us, just the, the genetic stuff that isn't quite right, he had none of that. He was perfect. He was whole. He was in a right relationship with God, a right relationship with his wife, a right relationship with creation. He was better, the better champion than any of us ever would be. He was the apex of the glory of man as originally made. And to think that you might be better than that, I, I, don't, think, I don't think so. As, as much as I admire and respect you, you're out of your league. You have no better natural human champion than Adam. You had no better chance than Adam's chance. And there was no better or fairer arrangement than the one with Adam and Eve. It was fair and it was just. And he was the perfection of humanity under the perfect circumstances. It's the ideal scenario and yet he failed. Humankind, natural humankind, failed with Adam. It's a fair and square and done deal. Now if you just still don't like the arrangement, to have a federal head, you must also refuse the other federal head in the passage. Because there are two federal heads here, both representing humanity, both bringing eternal, perhaps, consequences to humanity. And God, in his perfect wisdom and justice, has determined to hinge everything on these two great champions of humanity. We are all connected to one or the other. They are our team. They are our champions, whether we like it or not. This is God's system, and it is right. And I don't say that in an unfeeling way. I have wrestled with these things in my own life. But I do believe the Word of God is sufficient to instruct our own hearts and our own minds and our own perspectives that we might be transformed in our thinking and understand and say with God, yes, this is just and this is right. Now, it seems difficult for us. People actually in other cultures, it isn't a problem, which is really shocking for us because we think, well, doesn't everyone think like us? No, they don't. The global south, the global east, this is not as big of an issue for them as it is for us because they think more corporately. They get the corporate thing. We are steeped in this individualism that, that's unrealistic. 
But we understand it in other contexts. We do understand this, this aspect of our prospects rising and falling based on someone else in other contexts. And I think it's because it's natural. It's a natural human thing. We're not made to be, we are not, and we're not made to be autonomous individuals. We are corporate people. And so in other contexts, like sports, what do you think sports teams are all about? What's going on with the sports team thing? Right? You're, what's the expression? Uh, 80,000 people who desperately need exercise watching 22 people who desperately need to rest. Right? What, what's going on there? And, and we understand this. If you're, if you're a Boston Red Sox fan, you understand this idea of your prospects rising and falling with someone else's actions and choices, right? And if you're old enough, you know what that means over the long haul. You know what the agony of all those years of the curse of the Bambino. We all cheered and groaned season after season as the Red Sox had some of the, had some of the best overall records, but never a championship. Who can forget the single down the first baseline that went between Bill Buckner's legs. Who can forget that? Who was there to watch it? But then there were the 2004 Red Sox. The idiots, as they called themselves. The cowboy up guys. The long hair, the beards, the goofiness. And who can forget game six of the ALCS against the Yankees and Schilling's bloody sock on the heels of coming back from an 0-3 deficit, never been done before, and then going on to sweep the Cardinals, ending the curse with the World Series championship. I remember the joy, I'm sure you do if you're old enough as well, and the simultaneous uh, sentiment with my siblings, I wish granddad was still alive, because my grandfather was born in 1910. He watched the Red Sox as a boy and then spent the next 60 years after 1918 cheering for them, listening to every single game, and never seeing a championship. We all thought the same thing. That's how we feel about our teams, because there are champions, and our prospects rise and fall with them. We're not mere individuals. We get this. It's part of being human. It's how God has made things, and it is fitting and ultimate in Adam and Christ as the ultimate champions. So let's receive this reality, understand its implications, and understand where it's going because the, the passage here is not merely about being on the losing team. It's about a winning champion in whom you are to put all your faith. So next, let's talk about Jesus' righteousness. Adam's sin, Jesus' righteousness. It says in verse 14 that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. He's a forerunner. He's holding a similar role. And there's going to be another champion that is like him, but from our passage, we know he is much better. So let's just take a, a look throughout the passage and learn about this second champion, Jesus. Verse 15, but the free gift is not, is not like the trespass. I think we have these verses to show, hopefully they show up. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the free gift is not like the trespass. It's a free gift. It's not earned. It's not a penalty brought through the earning of that penalty. It's a free gift. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's purchased by Christ and given to us without strings attached. Justification is through faith apart from works. It's a free gift. No cost to us. Just simply receive it 
Receive it in all its goodness and grace and all the effect that it has. Receive it. And in receiving that gift, find your life transformed. Find yourself freshly uh, motivated to love him and follow him. Turning away from other things to him. Receive this free gift. The free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through the one man's trespass. But in the free gift, there is something much more wonderful. The favor and blessing of God. The very grace of God for the many For the many, the countless number in heaven that will be there as those who have inherited the blessing through simple faith in the champion Jesus. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One sin led to condemnation for all. Judgment came in that. It broke our relationship with God permanently. It naturally and automatically resulted in condemnation and spiritual death for all. But the free gift following many trespasses. Really nearly infinite amounts, humanly speaking, of trespasses. The free gift brought justification. Justification is being declared just and right, sinless and good and faithful. It's being declared as if you had never sinned, but not just that, as if you had obeyed to the point of death on the cross like Jesus did, as if you had obeyed in the perfect way that Jesus did. And in him, this champion, through faith in him, After many trespasses, there's justification. You are counted. You are declared righteous. My son and my daughter, my beloved ones, clean and free and destined for glory. After many trespasses, many trespasses, I'm so glad it says that. Now, the intention here, I think, is all of humanity, the many trespasses of humanity, but I got plenty on my own. If I look at my life honestly, in light of God's goodness and His glory and His good requirements, I fall short even on my very best days and even my very best motives are not complete and there are shortcomings in them. My sins are many. I wake up in the morning And I feel their weight. And it's the good news. Following many trespasses, there's justification. I am counted clean and forgiven. And I have a fresh start every moment, every morning. I can remember Christ crucified and risen. I can remember this champion who triumphs over my sin. What good news. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigns through sin. Death comes into our world and it corrupts it. It breaks it, destroys it. Death comes in and it ends the life of those made in God's image. This should not be. 
This is why when we, when we mourn at death, this is why we're shocked when people die because it should not be. These are people made in the image of God. These are thinking, feeling, worshiping, glorious beings made for the purposes of God. Dying. It should not be. It never should be. It's no wonder that Jesus at the grave side of Lazarus when his friend died weeps tears those tears were tears of sorrow and anger both together that was Jesus saying this shall not be and this will stop death has reigned and now through Christ through this grace and the free gift of righteousness we can reign in life Jesus has overcome sin and death he's been raised from the dead. He's alive forevermore. And when we turn to Him, we are alive forevermore in Him. Though we may die physically, we will never die. That's His promise at the graveside of Lazarus. Life eternal. One day we'll receive new bodies in the fullness of life as well. We reign in life in Jesus. Verse 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One trespass leads to condemnation. One act of righteousness. This is a way to sum up Jesus' final act of going to the cross. But it's one act of righteousness that was a whole pattern of a life of righteousness. A righteous man, the God-man, and his righteousness to the point of dying on the cross. That's the ultimate act of righteousness as he goes there to give himself up for you and for me and for the glory of his Father. As he denies himself to that point, bearing sin, that was no ordinary death. It was no ordinary crucifixion. It was a crucifixion where he bore the holy justice of God for our sins. There's no higher act of righteousness than that one. And through that one act of righteousness, it leads to justification and life for all men. Not condemnation, but justification and life in the 19th verse. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is an amazing, audacious offer. It's audacious. It's amazing. There's nothing better that could be offered us. There's nothing better out there than Christ crucified and risen and victorious for us. And through simple faith in Him, simple faith in Him apart from works, you, you do nothing but receive it. Believe it and receive it. You receive all these things. Forgiveness, justification, eternal life. There's nothing better. All the things that He earned and inherited are yours in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. He turns all of life's trials to gold ultimately. He rules over all things. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. He rules over all things. All things are ours. And because He rules over all things, we can go to the nations and go to our neighbors with the proclamation of the gospel. This is all in Him. It's an audacious, amazing offer. Let me ask you, what level of winnings in a lottery would make you happy? Say you had a friend that signed over a ticket and gave it to you. Just a good, really good friend. How much money would make you happy? A thousand? That's nice. Ten thousand? Mm, that's getting better. Hundred thousand? Ooh, that would be really nice. A million? Definitely would take that. How about a billion? There's billion dollar lotteries. How about that? Yeah. How about a trillion? 
Wow. How much would make you truly happy and safe and secure? Well, that's nothing compared to what you have in Romans 5. Nothing. In Jesus, you have far more than you'll ever know. And you'll spend eternity contemplating it and celebrating it and being in awe and worshiping God for it. These all are yours through Christ, this champion who has come for you, that you might in him believe and receive and live in these things. Finally, and very shortly, I don't know how I got to this late in time, so 1120. But there's two verses at the end I want to point out because of how helpful and amazing they are. Verses 20 and 21. Paul concludes as he's talking about all these things. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says the law came in to increase the trespass. He's speaking of the Old Testament law and the law in general. The law comes in to increase the trespass. The law has this effect of, of increasing the trespass. It, it makes it clearer and more vivid and, and uglier and worse. It actually, it actually, with sinful humanity, with this fallen nature from Adam, when we encounter the law, it doesn't make us better. It makes us worse. And so the law comes in and it increases the trespass. It's, it's kind of like, imagine if they decided to put up more speed limit signs. Instead of every three miles or whatever it is, it was like, every 20 feet. Speed limit, speed limit, speed limit. And then they put in between the signs, penalties. $100 for, the, for speeding, $200 for going 10 miles or more over the speed limit. Would that make us better drivers? Would that make us go slower? I don't think so. Maybe some of us would do it, would, would, but we'd be really guilty all the time. We'd just feel guilty. Oh no, how, how fast did I, did I, did I break the speed limit? Oh no. Uh, others of us would like, ah, forget the stupid speed limit. Mm, you know, I don't care. I think it would make us worse. And that's how the law works. It increases the trespass. It makes us worse in Adam. And so Paul says where uh, the law came, it increased the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more is what it says in the ESV. The, original, the word in the original language is one word. It says grace abounded all the more. That's a phrase, right? The original word is just one word. And it's hard to translate, but I'll do my best. Where sin uh, increased, where the law caused sin to increase, grace super duper abounded. That's what it says. And the idea that Paul is getting at in this whole passage, right? This is all, the whole section is like this. It says, there's Adam and there's the horror of sin and death. Yes, indeed. And it's increased in the law. But where that happened, grace comes in through Jesus, the mighty champion, and overwhelms, super duper overwhelms sin in every way. It conquers sin and death. It superabounds. And the word is so strong that Paul's going to later in chapter 6, we'll get there next week when Toby talks about it, have to correct people's concerns. Like, whoa, 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 are we going too far with grace here? That's how strong that word is. And that's how I want to finish because I want us to know that where sin abounds, grace super duper abounds in Jesus. That's the glory of these two champions before us. 
that we might understand the reality of the champion Adam and what comes with him, but even better, the glory, the grace, the wonder of our champion Jesus. Finish with an illustration. In the book, The Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the movie, they cut out an important part of the book. The movie doesn't end uh, with Saruman, the evil guy with Sauron dying um, on the tower. It ends with the, sh the hobbits going back to the Shire, this beautiful place that had been previously beautiful. And finding that Saruman in the meantime had gone back there and had scoured and destroyed the Shire, had burned down the trees, polluted the waters, rebuilt those hobbit holes and made these ugly mills, had enslaved its people. And the hobbits come back and they're devastated, but they're able to, to lead a, a rebellion against Saruman and, and reestablish hobbit rule. But the place is devoured. The place is a wreck. It's a mess. And what happens in the story is Sam, the sensitive one, the gardener type in the group, remembers that he had received this magical earth from the angelic angels. And he starts replanting with grains of this earth. And he does it throughout the shire. And then he takes what's left over and he lets it blow in the wind. It blows throughout the whole shire. 